Yes, he's acting shy, looking for an answer. Come on, honey, let's spend the night together. Now, hold on a minute before we go much further. Give me a dime so I can find my mother. I've never... Why on earth would you phone your mother when you're trying to get just a little bit sexy? I've, I've never understood that line. Sue Radford. Um, I'm afraid I wasn't hearing the the segment before that, so I yeah. have no idea. What about you? What about, what? I was going to say, it's probably, it you're probably best to remain in ignorance. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 can't, I don't know if either of you are big Rod Stewart fans, Nick Leggett. I quite like him. I do. Um, uh, yeah, but uh, look, sometimes I think lyrics are just written to fit in with the music. I, I mean, I, I really like, I do like some of the songs, but um, I like The First Cut is the Deepest. That would have to be my favourite. The First Cut is the Deepest. Yeah. Uh, and it's kind of, I was reading his backstory, I just realised just how much of a massive star he was. And guess who we've got on the programme right now? We have a gentleman who used to drive for Rod Stewart back in the uh, heyday in the mid seventies, Dave David Kiota, welcome to the program. Good day, Wallace. Thanks for your call. It's a pleasure to have you on, David. Tell us the story. Right, um, back in the hot summer, nineteen seventy-six, I worked for a, a large motor company, and I got one of the new Rover SD ones, big uh, V eight type things. And we were contacted by a company called Gold Diggers, which was a, a charity organisation. And they said, uh, we're looking for somebody with a, a good car to uh, drive Rod Stewart. And me being a big fan, put my hand up right away. And um, again, we were, so Saturday morning, very early, goes up to Glasgow Airport, uh, picks him up, and there's a, well, a couple of guys with him and a young lady who everybody thought was Brick Eklund, but wasn't. Um, she was the, the, from the Gold Diggers charity. So we went, uh, ooh, he wanted to go to a, a pub, I think it was a Billy McNeil's pub in Glasgow, yeah. to see him briefly and say hello, because he was a very big Celtic uh, fan. Yes. Um, and then we uh, went down to, if you know where Tunbury is, down south of Ayrshire, it was a big golf kind of a complex place, like owned now by Trump, of all people. Um, so down there we had a kind of yeah, meet and greet thing with people and then back up to Air United um, where he was playing a football charity match, which was wow. a charity What was he like to work alongside? You know, you'd have spent some quiet times with Rod Stewart while you're driving. What was... What, 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 um, very approachable, talkative, uh, we had lots yeah, just chats. Um, uh, after the football match we were going back down to Tunbury, uh, we stopped in at a couple of local pubs, which was quite something. We imagine a wee village here with about 200 people with a local pub, and then <laughs> we walked around the uh, So we had a, like, a pint there, and then a pint in another pub, uh, a wee place called Minishant. Um, uh, but no, a really nice guy, um, very approachable. What a great um, story. You're going gonna, you're gonna to try and get to see him? Uh, because time, he's... Uh, we are fully booked for the concert, yes. We're going up uh, <laughs> Uh, tomorrow. Let's hope that you can call out. Let's hope he might recognise you in the crowd, David. Well, you never uh, know. You never know. Lovely to have you on, David. Thanks uh, for okay. being with us. That's um, David who uh, from Wellington who drove Rod Stewart back in Scotland in the 70s. Oh, just stop texting me, please, about what Nick Leggett thinks about 
Jacinda Ardern. Five out of ten. Um, it's what Nick said, and that's that's it. Five out of ten. Sue gave. Uh, so this is <laughs> this is this this is this extreme thing though. Again, eh? You can't you can't have an opinion and and back it up without people reacting. Um, you know, and that's and that's the love and the hate. I think that Jacinda yeah. inspired. So you see. The haters will be saying five was too high, and the lovers will be saying five was too low. <laughs> What's quite low, though? Yeah, depends. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm now, just uh, waiting. I'm just waiting to hear from the people who think that I gave you far too high. As <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Sue Bradford, Nick Leg with me now. In an effort to tackle water pollution, England will adopt a plan to ban wet wipes containing plastic. According to Water UK, wet wipes flushed down toilets cause 93% of their sewer blockages, costing around $100 million pounds, rather, a year to clean up. Here, Water Care Services addressed this issue a few years ago, saying about 53 million wet wipes flow through their Tamaki Makoto waste treatment plant every year. With us is Water Care Services Head of Service Delivery, Sharon Danks. Kia ora, Sharon. What do you make of this plan in the UK, banning wet wipes? Um, yeah, well, obviously as a wastewater network operator, it would be a, um, a huge improvement um, to what we do at the moment. And in water care, we spend about $6 million a year cleaning up wastewater overflows caused by um, wet wipes and fats. And what? Packages, and hey. they also block our pumps. So there's significant expense to water utilities in New Zealand resolving Sharon, this issue as well. Have you I've just suddenly had a light bulb idea. Have you gone straight to the mayor's office, Wayne Brown, and you said to him, Wayne, I know how you can save six million bucks a year. <laughs> <laughs> Ban wet wipes. wet wipes in Auckland. That's an extraordinary amount. Yep, no it is. There there, there was a flushable standard, um, an Australian New Zealand standard introduced last year. Um but it was a voluntary standard to um, ensure wet wipes meet a flushable standard and that the manufacturers had to attest they had no plastic in them. But I think the UK has gone one step further in this space. 2101 to text. Ban West wet wipes in New Zealand or not? Because uh, I want to put the cat amongst the pigeons. They are also very handy. Sue Thank Bradford. You. <laughs> <laughs> Sue, Sue, you first. Ah, well, I'm still using rags and, and cloth for such things. I just don't see any problem with um, with the, with the old-fashioned method, which gets recycled automatically through the washing every 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 load. But um, I think the thing with the wet wipes is whether they contain plastic or not. Yeah. And I think it would be a grand idea if this country banned plastic um, containing wet wipes. It's clear that they cause terrible environmental damage in the water supply and, and are very costly. Um, to, to our water systems, and goodness knows we've got enough problems with our water already without um, 700,000 kgs of wet wipes going into Auckland's water care. Did you hear this? I mean, this, this? This should be breaking news. Uh, $6 million a year we spend on clearing wet wipes from Auckland's. I mean, I think that could fund Citizens Advice Bureau. Nick Leckett, you don't want them banned? Uh, look, no, I agree with Sue. Uh, I, I was being... You know, I knew Wallace that you would having small, fa- a young family yes. that you would appreciate uh, how helpful they are. Very. But I, but I don't think that gives anybody the right to use plastic products where they don't need to be. So I, I agree with Sue. And uh, you know, I, I think back to the days when it, 
we we did use rags and I mean we still use rags and wash them as well. But 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 wet wipes come in handy, particularly if you're out and about. So, uh, but look, if there are there, there are alternatives, they don't all have plastic in them. And I just think we've it's a it's a sensible thing. Where there, there's a consequence to these to these sort of things, and we've got to we've got to move and and do what's right. Well, Sharon, you might be interested to know that this issue is not polarising. There's a hundred percent agreement uh, with our listeners to ban them. They may say yes, they're handy, but um, I think the tide is uh, for banning them, like the UK. Um, what are the alternatives? You've heard of other, uh, as Sue Bradford said, sort of other types of rags. But are there serious alternatives? Um. Well, I think the alternative is is that you can still use the wet wipes, but you just don't flush them down the toilet and you um, put them into a waste paper basket or something and put them into the the rubbish, into the landfill. And that, from a overflow to the environment point of view, that's a better solution than flushing yeah. a wet wipe. Okay, so needless to say, Sharon, this must be quite the topic uh, amongst the water care community, the fact that something like wet wipes can cause these massive clogs. Yes, and it's it's a combination of the wet wipes, fats and oils getting poured into the sewers, and then they get caught up on tree roots. Oh gosh! Like that, and that's what causes the big fat bergs that you hear about. A oh god, it gets worse. Those three topics. So it's it's a significant problem across the world, but yeah. definitely here in Watercare as well. Okay. Um, any 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 discussion, any resolution, any consultation out on this now that the UK has um, uh, planned to ban wet wipes? Um, from Watercare's point of view, we um, are working with Water New Zealand, who advocates for um, new and improved standards and flushable standards for wet wipes and for any more industry-wide bans. Hmm. So we just we just work with Water New Zealand in this space. Okay, lovely to have you on, Sharon. Thank you for being with us. That's uh, Sharon Danks, Watercare Services Head of uh, Service Delivery. If you uh, didn't pick up on that news, uh, uh, the UK has adopted a plan to ban wet wipes. Uh, the biggest response of any topic so far, including Jacinda Ardern's valedictory coming up, is whether or not to ban them. And you're all saying let's just do this, just ban them. Uh, it costs this city, the super city, $6 million a year. Uh, didn't know that. I mean, that's extraordinary. Uh, wet wipes containing plastic, I can't believe they aren't banned already, uh, says someone. Ban them. Op shops are dumping hundreds of cages of clothing uh, that can't be sold. There's got to be a business opportunity there for cutting up cotton fabrics and selling them. That is a really great idea. Um, very good. Lovely to have you company this afternoon. We have Nick Leggett on this afternoon. He is the chief executive of Iara Aotearoa Transporting NZ, former mayor of Porirua City. And we have Sue Bradford, a former Green MP and a community-based uh, advocate. To this now, the government needs to introduce tougher sanctions for failing to comply with official information laws after the Stuart Nash saga, some open government advocates are saying. Chief Ombudsman Peter Bouchier reopened an investigation into a complaint about the decision to withhold some of the information and whether or not an email from Stuart Nash sharing cabinet discussions from political donors was improperly withheld. But even prior to that, there has been a wider issue on whether the OIA, or Official Information Act, is working as it should. 
With us is Andrew Eccleston, an open government researcher and senior associate at Victoria University's Wellington, Victoria University of Wellington's Institute for Governance and Policy Studies. Andrew, uh, welcome again. So the Act promoted open, transparent government, but some say, hey, it just hasn't happened. What's your views? Um, So I think what's really interesting is that the the OIA, as drafted by the Danks Committee in the early 80s, put, put as the first purpose of the law, enabling people to participate in the making and administration of laws and policies. And the issue of accountability of ministers and officials was the second thing. But as former Chief Ombudsman uh, Brian Elwood said in a speech 20 years ago, New Zealand has, uh, like many countries, prioritised the accountability issue rather than enabling public participation. And what this has done is build up a culture where where, um, people try to dodge accountability, as we seem to have seen in this recent case with uh, Stuart Nash, and... That's what leads to the situation where people get frustrated. But we, we, we can have penalties, and I think we should. Uh, New Zealand is in a small minority of countries that doesn't have penalties for intentionally blocking people's requests. Uh, countries like the UK, Canada, Ireland, Netherlands, India all have criminal offences for intentionally blocking requests or destroying information or getting officials to do it for you. Um, and we're in a small minority of countries. But the penalties should really just be a backstop to, in, to, to make civil servants be able to say to senior officials or ministers, no, I can't do that, minister, because that makes me liable for a criminal offence. OK, interesting, uh, isn't it? Uh, Nick, let's start with you on this. Well, kia ora, Andrew. I've, I've someone who has responded to Lagoima requests, but then uh, obviously I've, I've made official information requests, and I'm interested to know... I mean, this is obviously a high-profile case, but do you have any sense about you know, how big a problem is is the blocking of information or the stopping of information, uh, th- you know, through the public service and other public entities? Because I mean, I, my sense is it's quite a, a big issue, but I just wonder if you've got any metrics. Uh, well, no. This is one of the key problems that we have, Nick. Is that uh, the Public Service Commission doesn't keep, collect any data, nor does the Ministry of Justice. The only data that gets collected on the operation of the OAA are statistics on timeliness of responding to mm. requests. But but they're they're a very bad idea because they actually incentivise providing poorer quality requests. It's the basic uh. rule of any of any project management, right? Which is you've got time, quality, and cost. If you don't increase the resources but you want it out in a shorter time, then the quality of the response drops. Yes. Yes. Oh, that's interesting, um, because I uh, that's been one of the key issues, that it can take, it's supposed to be no later than 20 working days, but some people are saying, look, it's been dragging on for months, and in a couple of cases, uh, years. Sue Bradford. Um, I think it's good that a focus is coming into this, it's been um, my sense from working with groups in the community that for, for decades under both national and labour-led governments, it's got harder and harder for people to get good quality and timely OIA requests met, and that there is this deliberate um, dragging of the chain. But again, of course, I've got no data any more than anyone else has. But there is this um, growing fear that our public service is extremely risk-averse, that it's all about covering up. It's about... Um, where, where are the directions coming from? None, we citizens have no idea. 
Um, and I think an idea from, from Andrew Eccleston, who suggests an information commissioner with greater powers to investigate conduct of ministers' offices could be a good idea. Um, and, and the reason for penalties as well, um, on the one hand, I fear that would make the public public servants more risk adverse, but, but the good aspect of that is is what Andrew talked about just now, which is actually giving public servants the power to say no minister instead of yes minister. Yeah, um, okay. Well, yeah, well, Sue, Andrew Eccleston's with us now, uh, and so let's go to that. Uh, you're saying, Andrew, that you should take the responsibility for this away from the ombudsman. Who should it go yeah. to? Uh, I think we should do what many other countries have done, which is to set up a completely separate regulator called the Information Commissioner. And the Information Commissioner would ha- should have powers that the Ombudsman has to do own motion investigations without having to wait for a complaint. But the, the organisational culture of an Information Commissioner is quite different from that of an Ombudsman. An Ombudsman seeks to work by persuasion and recommendation. An Information Commissioner makes decisions on the application of the law, and if you think the Commissioner's got it wrong, you can appeal to a tribunal or the court. Oh. And that's what happens in the UK and Australia and Australian states and Ireland and so on. So New Zealand is now quite an outlier in having it being with the Ombudsman. And I should, suge- I should say, it's not just people like me saying this. I mean, I've worked on freedom of information laws for 30 years. Um, but uh, Sir Geoffrey Palmer said this in a speech to the International Ombudsman Institute in Wellington in 2012. He said, in 1987, I made it harder for, min- for the ministerial veto to be used. And since then, it hasn't been used. But it was a mistake. I should have actually taken the OIA off the Ombudsman and set up an information commissioner. An information commissioner away from the Ombudsman. So would that, um, would that allay your fears, Sue? Do you think that's not a good idea? Yeah, and I apologise, um, Andrew. I didn't, really, I didn't realise it was you that was speaking there. Um, yeah, I, I think worry. it's a really interesting idea. <laughs> good, good on you, Anne. For raising it. Yeah, it's a very interesting idea, isn't it? Andrew, uh, kia ora, thank you again for your time. That's uh, Andrew Eccleston there, an open government researcher, senior associate at uh, Victoria University there, wanting to take the responsibility for the OIA away from the Ombudsman. It's eight to five. Uh, the panel are in Z National there. They're coming thick and fast about um, wet wipes now. We might come to that tomorrow, a final show for the week. But the... Uh, I want to come back to the love of reading, the love of books. In 2021, the Department of Internal Affairs introduced writer Ben Brown as the first Tiafereto reading ambassador. The position was created to promote the value of reading for young people. And Brown was leaving the position in May, though Alan Dingley, who's currently the librarian at the Palmerston North Intermediate Normal School, will take his place. And Alan is with us now. He is going to tell us what he hopes to bring to the role. Alan Dingley, uh, the forthcoming Te Awhereto Reading Ambassador. Great to have you on. Ah, thanks very much for having me. Um, uh, yeah, I'm stoked. It's, um, I was kind of blown away when um, I was offered the position, but I, I can't wait to get started in May when um, <laughs> Ben Spence's term comes to end, yeah. I loved your story, and I we brought you on the panel because... Haven't libraries been in the news lately? And there's so oh, yeah. many uh, reminders from listeners saying, you know what, I loved my library growing up. And you'd be in that position as the librarian oh, at yeah, an intermediate it, it, school. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, I mean, and for me, like those, those years 
when I developed the love of reading, and this was in the sort of early mid eighties when you know sportsmen were, were New Zealand's sort of heroes and, and readers, we were just the sort of we sat in a corner. But me, I just I remember sitting in Havoc North Library where I grew up and just reading through the collections there and and pouring over them and just finding books that I could see myself in or escaping away into. You know, when life's you know but challenging sometimes, you can jump into your book and just dis- disappear whenever you want to. Absolutely, Nick. Yes, library was often a refuge from the classroom for me at school. So uh, I, I think uh, you guys do uh, terrific work, Alan. And I'm I'm interested to know what's the, what the new role, what are you going to be doing? Yeah, well, that's the thing. Basically, the, the role is about um, empowering um, communities, young people especially, but, but not only them, but their, their communities to embrace that love of reading. Um, and whether it is uh, within schools, school libraries, homes, um, public libraries, just just making it, it normal to be reading for pleasure, and it's something mm. that we probably don't do enough. And, and we we always say, oh, I don't have enough time, and that's and that's such a big fib. We can make time, and just finding a book and putting a, the book in the hands of a kid that they see themselves in, it just oh, there's no better feeling. Huh. Sue Bradford. Oh, congratulations, Alan. I'd never heard of this job before, but it sounds absolutely wonderful and good on you. Um, for, for um, getting the position and taking it forward. Um, it's a wonderful co-papa and I, at, at a time when we've got a mayor up here in the Auckland region who thinks that librarians should be volunteers, the hours of libraries should be cut. It's wonderful to hear about people who are being brought out into the world as, to encourage um, reading for our children and young people. It's just brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. And, and to be honest, libraries are, are, the, are one last probably refuges that are, are, are free and have equal access to all. E- everyone is welcome in a library. Oh, no, no, kia ora, Alan. This is just, just <laughs> wonderful. Um, can I ask you what strategies would you suggest to the parents out there who would like to get their kids reading just a little bit more? Oh, um, it's uh, ask, ask the people that might be in the know. If you don't know, ask librarians. Feel free. But right. Whatever the child brings home, that's okay to read. We've got to get rid of that snobbery around things like Diary of a Wimpy Kid or, or, or Andy Griffiths. You know, we've got to get rid of that snobbery. Really? But what if not... they fart constantly? Oh, hey, hey, I'm, I'm a dad and there's nothing more funny than a dad farting, let's be honest. <laughs> one of my, one of my favourite books to recommend, especially for reluctant readers, and I'll say especially boys because we need to be promoting them, is a book called The Day My Bum Went Psycho by Andy Griffiths. <laughs> and parents will go, oh my gosh, no, my child shouldn't read that. But it's well written, it's hilarious, and they love it. They eat it up. Um, there are books now coming to my mind, Nick, where I used to, because uh, I, I, I would sit in the Nelson College Library reading my Asterix, Nick. <gasps> yeah, mm. mate, they are still so popular. <laughs> are they, though? Rock, I just bought at the Red Cross Book Sale the complete set of Foot Rock Flats. And it's flying out of my library. It's fantastic. One Mike says, get rid of wet wipes and you can save the libraries. So they're all joining up this <laughs> afternoon there. What, a, what, what, about, what about you, Sue Bradford? Uh, is there a memory that comes to mind? A young Sue growing up, what would you gravitate oh, to? I'd love to know what Sue read. Oh, I was reading voraciously from from, from five, and, and libraries have always been my my home and place of sanctuary. Still are. I love reading and encourage it among everybody I know, including children and grandchildren. Oh, wonderful! So finally, before Absolutely. you leave us, uh, Alan, what do you hope 
to bring to the role? Um, basically, I want to amplify what, what awesome work is already going on out there, whether it's in schools, whether it's in prisons, whether it's in libraries. Uh, I want to amplify, find the people who are doing the awesome mahi on the ground and give them like a voice. I want to amplify what everyone's doing and then connect them with other people who are doing the same thing and just let the passion Flow. We'll keep in touch with you, Alan. Kia ora. Congratulations right. on the role. Thanks for having me, guys. Appreciate it. Alan Dingley, the forthcoming Te Awhereto Reading Ambassador. We've had Sue Bradford and Nick Leggett this afternoon. You've both been A+. Plus. 10 out of 10, even for you, Nick Leggett. <laughs> let me tell you. <laughs> oh, thank you, Wallace. I feel so much better now. May, maybe an 8. Anyway, I'm Wallace Chapman. Checkpoint with Lisa Owen is next. I'm back with you tomorrow, 3.45. I'll see you then.